Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this uh, different edition of the Muslim Centric Podcast. So I've got my guests here. Um, we've got Sheikh Razwan, Muhammad, uh, Osama Said, and Zara Muhammad. So, firstly, I'd like to maybe just start with introductions. Just tell us a bit about yourself. So, how would you kind of introduce yourself? So, who wants to go first? Shall I start from my right? <laughs> I think the Sheikh should go first. <laughs> um, no, that's fine. I can go. So, I'm, I'm Zara Muhammad. I am the Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain. Um, Born and raised in Glasgow, I think in this setting very much with friends, but in my professional setting as a Secretary General, elected in 2021 as the first female, the youngest and the first Scot to uh, lead the organisation, MCB being the largest umbrella body for Muslim representative um, organisations. Okay. And you've been through quite a journey, so I think we'll probably come on to some of that and your reflections on how that's been. Uh, Osama? Yeah, Osama, uh, my name is Osama, and... Uh, I work in communications uh, and, and and marketing. Um, I've done that in a number of different fields in in politics and uh, in um, Al Jazeera. I used to work out in in Qatar uh, as head of communications, and uh, I've worked at various charities as well, including Amnesty International, where I was the global comms director. And Sheikh Rizwan. Yeah, I'm Rizwan, and I'm the educational director of iSyllabus. Okay. And you're based in Istanbul at the moment? Currently in Istanbul, yes. You're lucky that you're visiting Glasgow. So lucky. I am lucky. Lucky. We are yes. lucky as well. And I'm Aman, I'm your host, so you'll be familiar with me. So I'm a doctor working in Glasgow as a psychiatrist. So, so I think we're going to talk about lots of different topics today. Um, but I think the one that is at the forefront of all of our minds is obviously Gaza and Palestine. Um, so it's nearly four months since things, you know, the conflict has escalated. Um, and I'd be just really keen to hear your reflections of, you know, where, what impact has everything that's been happening over the last few months had on you in your kind of day to day in terms of your, your work, your employment, your personal life. So just kind of pausing and reflecting where we are with Gaza and what impact it has on your reflections so far. So. I don't know who wants to get going. So you start with you, Zara, again, would you mind? So I know MCB has been incredibly active as well. Um, you know, one one of the things in your role is obviously you travel a lot around the country. So how what's your kind of, you know, if you have to pause and reflect in terms of how the last few months have been? Yeah, Bismillah. I think sadly it's nearly more than 115 days now of the conflict and the siege. Um, it's been relentless. I think the the first month or two were, were the hardest hitting because we had so many different things to grapple with. On one hand, you're witnessing, you know, unbelievable scenes of horror and, and killing and we're watching on a live stream, which we're not necessarily used to, but in real time we are seeing the horrors that are happening there in Gaza, wider Palestine. So one part of the role was to make sure we were advocating for that and then quite early on calling for a ceasefire. But I think anticipating that this was going to be a lot longer and a lot tougher than what we've faced before. The second part of that was dealing with the dehumanization of Muslims and of Palestinian advocacy and the stifling of that advocacy. So a lot of it was around frontline media, challenging narratives and stopes around Muslims being called bloodlust and death cults. <clears throat> and a lot of that was normalized even on um, shows like Question Time who give platforms to certain commentators who said those things. 
Um, and then at the third level was around what was happening here in the UK. And obviously communities have been ruptured by this, both in terms of, I'm sure we'll get into it, our relationships with politicians and with the political space and that disappointment and disenfranchisement with our community leadership, including myself. We've all, you know, we've all tried to do our best and do as much as we can. Um, but I guess maybe this um, crippling, crippling reality that actually all the things we thought we'd build and the, the things that we'd done and, uh, you know, maybe we just weren't quite there yet in terms of how much of an impact we can make to challenge such narratives and tropes. So if I'm honest, at a personal level, it's been very, very difficult because people um, are, the expectation is high, delivery is even higher, but to keep a pace with what's going on as well as to sustain your own self has been difficult. But I always believe that there's um, still hope and the positive of it is you've never before seen this much attention to the cause, this much global solidarity beyond faith and background, and also hopefully a much more strengthened political solution. But anyway, that's just a little bit from me. I think there's a lot to reflect on and will we come on to. I mean, some of what, we, we, what have you learned so far with over the last few months in terms of your reflections and where we are? I think, same as Zara, there's, there's multiple levels to this. There's a domestic and an international. And of course, first and foremost, is for the Palestinians themselves. And, and overall, there's been a huge wake-up call. Um, I mean, I, th I think... I certainly had a feeling, and I'm sure I'm not alone, that over the last number of years we'd, we'd made progress uh, on a number of levels uh, on the Palestinian issue uh, and prospects for, for peace and justice and security for everybody in the region uh, and for, for Muslims more broadly. And I think on both of those issues, it's been shattered on, on the Palestinians. You know, we'd seen cultural moments. We'd seen Mo uh, on on Netflix. We'd seen, uh, I think it was Farhouse nominated at the Oscars. You thought, okay, there's there's real Palestinian solidarity rising. Um, you could see concern amongst people that that enjoy, um, you know, occupying other people's lands. Um, getting really worried about the the rise of solidarity, the interconnection between Black Lives Matter. Um, dispossession of natives, native peoples, uh, and the Palestinian issue—you could see that rising across the world. That that feeling, and and there was this kind of thing, as as Martin Luther King says, that uh, you know the arc of justice bends to uh, the, the arc of humanity bends towards justice, and you you could see that playing out, and then for it to to be shattered in the way that it was, and I and I know this just speaking to so many people that it's it's just left people feeling bereft. Um, obviously, those in the region. But all of those who who value principles of humanity across the world, feeling, how can this be allowed to happen? How can people be supporting this playing with so many lives? You know, literally millions of people being corralled around this tiny bit of territory. You're told to go to the south, told to go west, told to move different coordinates, as if it's just some kind of sick computer game <clears throat> being played from from above um but you know people are mobilizing i think that wake-up call has made people rise to the occasion i think there's there's weird things happening uh, but there's also really good and positive things happening and, and i think people take a lot of heart from from events at the icj over over the last couple of weeks um there is an awakening happening and and all we can hope really is that 
people get a respite very soon within the region and uh, we move towards peace for, for everybody um, around the world. Yeah. Sheikh, your reflections and... Mm. I mean, I, as soon as this happened, I, I did a series of podcasts on this with Zawir Malik. So, um, and they were actually, they were like timestamped to specific phases in the first month, I think it was. So initially when, when what happened... Um, we were processing it. I was processing it very raw because I, just before I went live with the podcast, I, I, I phoned one of my students who's now in Sheffield. He's a GP. He's Palestinian. He's from Gaza. And just want to touch touch base with him, see what's happening. And, you know, he tells me there's a couple of his mem members of the family just been killed the day before and he has to leave the call, catch up with him after the podcast. And there's a whole um, section of his family killed. And... Um, so this is people, this is a student I've taught for a long period of time. We spent, he had hours and hours of classes, four hour classes back to back on Arabic grammar and logic. And I remember I mentioned it to him as well, that one after one of the classes, we finished a book and the end of it was a signature of one of my teachers who um, I finished the book with. And it was the anniversary of his death. He'd been killed by the, the Shia militia in Damascus. His father had been hunted down, decapitated and put in front of his house. And I reminded him at that point, which was about, I think this was at 2014, I said, I pray that this never happens to any of us, this type of bloodshed and carnage, that we don't see it. But the reality is the historical view of what's happening is a real view. I mean, there is this sense of um, helplessness that, you know, that we've, we've apparently built so much. We've got political leadership, um, in the highest office in the in the UK, um, and and for young people specifically, when I speak to young people, it's as if look, what you people in your forties and fifties said you've achieved isn't actually nothing, but that belies the fact that there's a historical view to this as well, which I think is the Quranic view, which is, uh, you know, it comes out in the story of the prophets Musa and, and Harun, in which they they pray to God and beseech God to destroy Pharaoh, and God says that I've accepted your du'a. But in the books of Tafsir, it mentions it's 40 years until that du'a is accepted. So one of the things about um, the current situation in Gaza is that there is the reaction to what's happening. And it has to be a real in-time reaction. And I think as humans, that's what we do. But there is a sense of the fact that we don't live just for this moment. We live true to our beliefs, our morals, and that cannot be negotiated. And you can comment every single day with what's happening, who's killing and who's saying what and what's the specifics. But you have to, I think you have to have some kind of moral um, viewpoint. You have to have some kind of sense of the historical um, push of, of history as well, how history is going. And you want to be on the right side of history. And whatever you're, you're providing to whatever's happening has to fit into that, that context. So when I was doing those podcasts, one was about the specific events, then it was about the, about the history, and then about the future. The future is complicated. Um, and this is what I think we need to get out there, which I don't think is getting out there, is that that we have to realize that the the what is happening is simple. Like the, what is happening is you don't need to, you know, have a specific moral bent to understand where right is and where wrong is. But the complexity is in the solutions. And I think there's not enough Muslim voices that are saying that this is going to be extremely complicated and we can't just you know, walk out the room without negotiating some kind of solution. That requires maturity. But the problem with that is that the people that 
will make those points will be ostracized from the community. That's a, that's a problem. And that's where I'm kind of watching the whole discussion is that I feel everybody's jumping on on this kind of thing that we're, we're, we're in the ascendancy, people are realizing what's happening. But the reality is, it's almost like being in, 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 in the cage with a, with a mixed martial arts fighter. You think you're able to do it. Once you get in, you realize you're going to get destroyed. And you can't just say, well, I should be able to destroy this person because I've trained. The reality is that's not going to happen. And I think it's a question of speaking truth to power. Unfortunately, it works not just to oppressors. It also works in terms of power here is also the majority. And I think in the Muslim community, there is a majority that relies simply on the fact that they're right, morally right. Being morally right does not get you the solutions that you need. So it's very complicated. You can see it's what, what con concerns me and keeps me awake, awake at night is the fact that somebody has to step, step up to this task and not just echo everything that we feel that we think is the oppression. I mean, what do you guys, do you think the, the response of the Muslim community in the UK has it been better than what you thought you would have expected? Or do you think, you know, it, it's highlighted many, many of our kind of weaknesses and failures? Or, I mean, what's your sense of, um, you know, the response? Because, you know, I, I was reflecting because the, the other kind of comparison I have, that you're probably maybe a wee bit too young for this, is after the Iraq war, um, you know, and the response of that. And... I think we really caught unaware as a community, you know, if you think about who our spokespeople were and, you know, it was, you know, the same people who, you know, maybe couldn't speak much English and it was all about Islam equals peace. And that was about as much as the argument was. And what we see now is, you know, online and viral people that are very eloquent and sometimes, you know, giving as good as they get. So, you know, you think, are we, have we progressed in many ways? Uh, but then, you know, is countered with that, well, actually, you know, we have Muslims in these senior positions now, you know, in politics, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have Muslim politicians really that were in these places. And now we've got, um, you know, first minister in Scotland, you've got a Muslim mayor in London, you've got MPs in the House of Parliament. Um, and has that kind of test all failed? Is we saying, well, okay, we had, you know, 30 years ago, we just said, we need people in these influential places. We need people in the media. We need people, and you know, got cultural icons, and we have a lot of these Muslims. But then, you know, has that really pushed the needle? Did we? Did it make any difference? Because I, 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 my worry is that people, or the section, there's some sections that are a bit disillusioned, a bit fed up, and and are feeling well. Actually, the hypocrisy, the whole everything that we've been trying to work on has been a bit pointless because it comes to this and even Labour can't stand out and call for a ceasefire. You know, basic justice that people are asking for, um, you know, because even asking for the ceasefire, which, you know, that's not the be-all and end-all really, isn't it? I mean, that's just a, a starting point and we couldn't even get past that. So, I mean, what what's your reflection as a community where you get impressed, are you disappointed? Do we, does it show that we're still far to go? I think being on the front line, <clears throat> I think the Sheikh very aptly has put the problem at hand. The community, in my caveat, limited wisdom and time, but steep learning curve of being the head of the organization is, I think the community operates in binaries and populism and simplicity. And, you know, 
everything is different. So you can't deny, you know, what, I guess my parents' generation or the generation before the the MCB successive leadership, everything has changed. So we are more articulate, we are more confident, but understanding how power works and decision-making and policy and comms, those are different things. And I think the, the simplistic thing is, as you said, like it all became about a ceasefire, right? And when we were having conversations behind the scenes, politicians rightly so also made the point about well what 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 about after that what does it look like what does the long-term peace look like and also you know to to make everything about this one issue we have to also look at everything else around it so this issue impacted schools employment it impacted um integration interfaith you know it's uh, economics you know it has how we shop how we spend but also it's tested faith as well and people's reliance on Allah. So one of the few things people were saying is you should pray. <laughs> that became like a soft answer, you know, what, how dare you tell me to pray, you know. Um, we had, and, and see the, the challenge that I have um, being a representative is that you've got a spectrum of opinions. We're a broad-based umbrella and there'll be very strong views on what should be said and what should be done. There'll be more, you know, then there'll be the other side of it. And then somewhere in the middle, a lot of really confusion, you know, because people are emotional. And so I don't think it's right for me to say whether I'm disillusioned or not, because I think I understand more of the reality because I'm closer to it. But that same mirror was looked down at me. So on one hand, I was doing everything possible. I was recording extra videos. I was doing the news. I was doing the, the community engagement. We had the Palestinian ambassador with 5,000 people online, you know, trying to get community information. Um, but, you know, we still, it's not enough, you know, and I can't go and stop the fighting. Um, and this has been an issue that we've been talking about for as long as I've been alive and 75 years even at that. But also, it also is a question about who we are and what we're trying to get from all of this. I think the sad part of it is that lack of working together. And realistically, we've been quite divided and highlighting our division and actually using that also as a tool. I mean, you we also have to admit that there's been a lot of opportunists that have come out of this. There's been a lot of clickbait content. There's been a lot of people who have taken that division. You know, we've got you know, inter people on Interfaith, for example, or wherever it is, you know, there's, there's good, well-meaning people everywhere that don't like what they're seeing. But because things are political, they may not be able to say what they want to say. But we will then condemn that, right? And sometimes a quiet voice is also a good voice too. And so for me, I think it's just been um, very stressful. But all you know is that, and to conclude, like you can only do your best and Allah knows what you're trying to do. But things have changed, and I think in a positive way. <laughs> we should probably say, I mean, you're, we invited you here as Zara, not as a I MCB Secretary General. I don't know whether you can disentangle the two, but um, yeah, you're not, it's not a, I think at a human MCB level, it, yeah, I know it's very view, difficult. Your opinion, really. We're saying, guess what you're experiencing. Yeah, what your but I think are. because I live that experience, yeah. and yeah, but yeah. anyway, I appreciate the thought. Sam, I wouldn't. Maybe Zara will come back to this as well. You said one of the things that we, you know, we don't really understand how, the, you know, most of us don't really understand, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm not really into politics and that whole domain of how these decisions get made. You, you've you've lived and breathed that, you know, both of you really in, in different ways, obviously very close to um, the S&P back in the day as well. So, I mean, what what when you talk about we don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes or le the levers of power, you know, inside of working smarter, what, I mean, 
what would you say the community doesn't really get or doesn't really appreciate um, that if we were if we were to be smarter about things, that might have more impact. We're a young community, yeah. so the, the, there's there's a level of harshness you can have about this. And if I, if I'm summing up the Muslim response over the last few months, the thing I go back to is this incident in Birmingham where somebody who I presume was very well-meaning and supporting the Palestinian people thought that the thing that they can do is go down to local branches of McDonald's and set off rats inside the restaurant. Not just any rats, rats colored in the Palestinian flag. And that was their protest. And what that says is a number of things. It, it, it You could be described as immature. Um, uh, I think the police also described it as, 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 as illegal and, and the, the gentleman was, was, was arrested. Um, but it also talks about helplessness. It was almost, a, you could see it as a cry of, of anguish that I, I don't know what to do. I, there's nothing I can do. Um, and, you know, we, we don't have the level of access that communities that are much more established have. We're, we're getting there. If we look at the progress over the last couple of decades, it's, it's been enormous. And you mentioned some of those areas of progress earlier. And I think that's just going to increase. And, and if I look back, you mentioned um, after, after the Iraq war, you know, there were similar discussions of, oh, these protests are all fine and well, but it's all very emotional. Um, and is that enough? What's that achieving? And I was involved in, in that in those days. And what I see is people who I was there organizing those protests with are now in politics. They're working as journalists. They're working in the film media. They've, they've got places because it was an awakening moment. I mean, there was, there was a reaction that they had, which was effective at the time, but the long-term effect that it had on them was to to up their game professionally um, and, you know, also bring in some of those values into into what they're doing. So I'm really hopeful when you see when you see people engaging in the protest now, trying to make their voice heard, doing whatever that they can on social media. These are the avenues that we have because, you know, most people, we don't own a press, we don't run political parties. Um, but I think we're getting there and I think you're going to see a new generation coming into that and raising the game uh, even more. And for those that enjoy war and, and destruction and, and, and almost seem to be reveling in the idea of uh, further dispossession of the Palestinian people, that's what that that really gets them fearful um even though our message is one of not subjugation is like the other side it's it's one of love of peace of of coexistence that people can live together and that is the only way this is going to be resolved and to to to, to shake's earlier point that this has to be about finding real solutions and i think as as our maturity increases i think you're going to see more and more of that emerge this is an open question anyone i mean what's um I mean, if we if we were working smarter, or if we were wanting to be more effective, what could we do be? What should we be doing? What what would make a difference? Because you know, a number of times, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying disagreeing with all of this. I'm just ch challenging the, the number of times I'm asked to sign a petition. You know, um, and then you've got the rallies, you've got you know the vigils. There's so much. That you you know people are doing and there's that activism and you know is that 
good is a is a more that we could be doing that would be effective and i guess part of that i wonder sheikh echoes with the challenges you probably have as, as a scholar is people often want quick answers or you know maybe rapid answers and you know i know you spent you know a long long over a decade trying to say there's a long-term approach as well you know about education raising the standards of community there's not just like firefighting when you're in the situation but actually building and prevent you know thinking strategic and long term it's maybe not as glamorous or it's, it's, people aren't you know sometimes harder than um just looking for the quick wins i mean how do you balance the two what do you think what's your reflections as a community do you think well this is good, you know, this is fine, or actually, what, what are we missing a trick here, or what, what should we be learning from well, I mean, the last look, few look, In terms of just leaving aside all the political stuff, look at your religious um, observations, some of them are immediate, that you do all the time, is prayers that you have to do punctually, and then there's certain things that you have to do yearly, and there's certain things you do seasonally, and then there's certain things you do in a lifetime. The fact that you have a long-term plan and you want to create um, some kind of resilience within the community and longevity does not take away from the fact that you also have to give some people something to do right away. So there is people who can't process the fact you have to plan for a generation into the future, that they have to, they need something now. And for them, you, you have to, as a religious scholar, but also as an activist, you have to say, okay, do this thing right now. Just do it, go there and do that. And you feel like you've done something because that's part of our religious, um, I, I think our DNA as a, as a community is quite interesting because we know that everything's time specific and there's certain things like Hajj that you do once that you're like, you're as if you're a newborn baby. So you've done, you've achieved something, but it's only once, you got one shot and you need to do it properly. And I think with our think thought leaders, we need to have the courage to say that to people. And also we have the facility to say that this is something you can do right away. You can do your demonstrations. You can do the. You can do the. You know all the engagement with politicians. You can also have. I think one of the, my main criticisms of the Muslim community is that they have tended to want to disengage with society and not create resilience and 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 create that kind of infrastructure professionals. And I think one of the main areas of that is in law because I think. I mean, I've said this so many times over a decade. People say, she wish I go to study Islam. I said, no, you should go to a law school and do human rights law and then excel because the impact you have by doing that and doing it well and doing it as a passion is much more than I'll be able to do as a scholar in terms of impacting people's lives on earth, in terms of getting their justice. Because essentially, the laws that we have, and this is something that is mentioned by a lot of very interesting scholars in the Middle East, like Imam Zuhaidi, is that, the, the the creation of international law statutes and in, a, in a lot of ways short circuits a lot of our th thought about jihad a lot of our thoughts about dar al-harb dar al-kufar you know the kind of bipartite dis distinction between islam and the west or non-muslim lands because essentially if you're able to project your voice and call people to what you believe is good freely in accordance with the laws of any land and, and that's in fact what it is you should not need to do anything apart from live and call for your rights and if you're able to do, articulate that then you should be able to get exactly what you want and palestine issue is one amongst many and i think people well you've had people say you, you don't need to go to university if you need to take a student loan you don't need to go to university you can 
you do whatever you can just but don't go to you don't have to be a doctor you don't have to be a lawyer but then at the moments like this that you find that you do need to be a lawyer but we need a critical mass of lawyers where we get the very best of the best so it's not about having lawyers it's about having people that from that batch of lawyers we have people that are critically engaged with the topics and so for me it's it's you know you have answers that are immediate you have to have answers that are immediate but you have to have generational answers as well and you have to in a sense disengage with from the the day-to-day -day, the anguish of this moment in a sense again that's a prophetic voice and i what i also feel is that the prophetic voice is disappearing from discourse the more desperate Muslims become, the more the prophetic voice disappears. What do you mean by the prophetic the voice? The prophetic so voice is the voice, that, and this echo in, in, our, in our imagination that should be there is that, you know, when the Prophet left Mecca al Muqarramah, he turned back and he said, I would never have left if my people hadn't thrown you out. He comes back well over a decade later, coming in and not taking retribution, but not, not doubting the fact that he would be back because he was on the, on, on the truce. But he never forced it. Like he didn't force taking back Mecca. He actually turned his back on it. And he was almost invited to come back. And we have to have that confidence. You know, that prophetic voice of everything comes, happens at a specific time. Sometimes you need to take a step back. You need to re recollect your, um, your kind of, you know, your, your power and your thought. And, you know, just take, take account of what you have and build for the long term. I think that is, especially in our day and age of social media and clickbait, that's disappearing. You can't make that voice heard. It's not possible because there's somebody there to, you know, have a reaction video or some kind of refutation. Uh, and, that, and, and I would imagine the Prophet I said, if he was here, there'd be Muslims refuting him. And it, even this is the thing, I think the religious prophetic voice is missing. But the prophetic voice is also like, one of the things that I, I, I found fascinating about Sirah is the Prophet and when he, during the Battle of Uhud, you know, they've won Badr and then the Quraysh come back stronger and meaner. And the Prophet says, we should stay in, we should stay in Medina. And the young people in Hamza says, no, we need to go out. And the Prophet saying, no, you don't need to. And everyone else saying, okay, we'll stay here. But once they decide and say, we want to leave, what he does is amazing because he says, okay, I value your opinion, even though it's wrong. He goes in and puts not one coat of mail on, two coats of mail. And they see the fact that he's not putting one coat of armor on, two. He's serious. And they say, no, no, we, we don't want to do it. But the Prophet engaged with them in their mistake. It was, it was a mistake and he allowed them to make the mistake. He could have said, no, we're staying here. And so in certain situations, we need to let people make their mistakes. But we need to point out to them what we learn from the mistakes. So I think, you know, the thing about the people around this table is we need to have the courage to say these kind of things and not worry about the repercussions. Zara, when you, you travel, I follow you on Instagram, so you travel a lot, you know, yeah. you're always traveling and stuff and visiting lots of centers and mosques, etc. I mean, what's your sense of... Um, I guess what Sheikh was talking a bit about in terms of are people kind of engaged, thinking long term? Are they are you optimistic about you know the community? I mean, I, I, I have to be honest. You know, 
when the in the first few weeks uh first few jummas after you know the recent kind of conflict our imam didn't speak, say anything about Gaza apart, apart from in the dua at the end and I'm sitting there infuriated and was one of the few times I thought I, was, I need to speak out because it's on everyone's mind you know it's everyone's so distraught and I know we can't pigeonhole you know every, there'll be good places and bad but I'm just trying to get a sense of um, as you travel what's your kind of sense of some of the things that Sheikh was talking about in terms of, you know. Yeah, I know. It's such a good reflection. So um, maybe I'll broaden my travel a little bit beyond, before the con. So I've maybe visited over 300 kind of organizations from Newport and Swansea to Aberdeen and Leicester, Blackburn, Liverpool, just to give the audience a flavor of like. All the tropical places. <laughs> all the tropical <laughs> places, yeah. All, all where there's a Muslim, you know. And I think what's Top really. Top of that time. <laughs> and the Beriani, of course. <laughs> and I have sat in the imam seat, which was actually, you know, in the, in the office, I was like, am I allowed to sit there? And I've sat at the front of the congregation. Um, so yeah, they've let me in, which is quite good. I mean, what I, I think what I, to maybe um, make the conversation more holistic is the reason that we undertook those travels was to get a sense of, well, who are Muslim communities? What do they look like? What do they think about? And it's so diverse. It's really, really diverse, partly with the community that have been here generationally, but also the new intake, huge refugees come at communities and um, and we've all come from, I guess, different diasporas and we've integrated. But um, from the last, this 2021 census, 50% of Muslims born in this country are under the age of 15 or younger. That's in 2021, now eligible to vote and work. So they are the emerging workforce. But I think the statistically we're more British now, being you know, more of us in the UK. So, I mean, what we see is a very diverse picture where um, the point that you're talking about, why didn't Imam speak? Well, if you're a registered charity, for some of them, it would have been navigating, talking about a political issue when you're a charity. And that's why Charity Commission got involved, remember, with all that. So I can I can understand the hesitancy. We put a lot of guidance out about some people didn't know what prescribed group was. Some people didn't even know how to talk about it and what word they can say or that. But also I think, so on one side it's, and you've got your traditional institutions, but there's also a growing kind of mental health, youth, young people, schools, and we have lots of institutions and lots of work. I think the trouble that we have is in um, building a Muslim civil society, which I think Sheikh was alluding to. There's some of us, you know, shine out stars and people have gone to do great things in sports or journalism or TV presenters or politicians or whatever. But there's just a lack of that kind of middle area of civil society. So, for example, we've got a huge section of our community that do charitable work. All of us in our own way. But, you know, the ch Muslim charity sector come Ramadan is going to be working 24 hours a year. We've got a huge section of our community in religious literacy, you could say, you know, um, in the madrasas and the mosques and that kind of spiritual. And there's huge sections that do, I guess, in some ways, a service providing, hospitality, you know, this business, hospitality, whatever. Very few in other spaces. And the reason that I say that is that's the trouble, right? When things like what we're talking about or other issues come about, we don't have enough connectivity to know how to navigate it. And we rely on that very small sliver to tell us what to do, only if we're happy with what they say <laughs> on condition, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I found, because obviously I came in, I was elected at 29, coming into an organization. And I think I now find myself like a, a 5.0 to a 
2.0, you know, so there was a couple of generations missing. So when I came in, I just saw the world very differently and rosy tinted. And, you know, I knew those Uncle G, I don't want those interviews. Let's change that. Let's rebrand the website or whatever. But I think I was speaking to the audience that is of my generation younger, which is like, yes, we can. Whereas a lot of our community leadership is still still figuring out if they're maybe British enough or if they want to be here or if they want to be part of society. Because younger lot aren't really thinking about that. Overall, the picture is very positive and our institutions are here and we're here to stay. The trouble is direction um, and also understanding that difference is okay when we can get to the same place in different ways. And then I think there's also something around that diversity point, that diversity is really good for us. We need to lean in the, on that more. So scholarship's really interesting. So obviously I've got to meet all the, the different kinds of scholars, very conservative, other different levels of conservative, I should say, but all the different branches and trees and everything else in between. And I think it's it's incredibly important and enriching to engage scholarship, but, but scholarship is only helpful if scholarship understands the world that it's operating in. And so at the same time, you have to balance that. So I might talk to certain scholars or imams about letting women in a mosque, you know, but I might also talk about mental health and well-being and what are we talking at, at the, the minbar, what are we seeing? And then at the same time, people attack the mosques, they're useless and that. I said, do you know we pay our imams peanuts? Most of our mosques are run on a voluntary basis, as are our organizations, yet we expect them to be pastoral carers, youth workers, you know, chaplaincy. So what you want, you don't necessarily want to invest in. What you require, you're not facilitating. But somehow we have managed. <laughs> and I think we're going to continue to be, you know, we're... Zara, you've been to America. You've obviously seen the yeah. way that they deal with their religious institutions. And That's incredible, yeah. I heard about the pay scale. The, yeah, they've got quite... To tell, tell us about America. No, 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 I'm just... Oh, it's quite just like, a lot more, yeah. It's quite... Um, it's very substantial pay. Uh, you could do quite well if you not, do. Not the pay, the infrastructure for... It's uh, all set up. They, they plan the basketball court before the mosque, the musalla. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the Adam Center in, in yeah, DC yeah. is just absolutely incredible, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on what you've heard? Look, I, I, I think overall, I mean, my, my mind is, is very much on um, solutions. Where do we go from here? And some of this, you know, just may not be possible. Uh, because I, you know, I see some of the statecraft that's been attempted by by Saudi Arabia recently. You know, uh, you know, what on the face of it seems like a smart proposal: um, exchange hostages and prisoners. Um, Israelis get released, Palestinians get released. Um, the 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 war stops. Um, Palestinian state gets recognised as a result of normalization with Saudi Arabia. Like you can see a, a sort of whole set of chess moves, except the carrot within that for the Israelis is meant to be normalization with Saudi, when it seems that the administration in charge in Israel really wants Gaza much more than it wants normalization with Saudi. So that that thing seems dead in the water. And and I, th I think back to theories of change, I think there's a huge element of, of lawfare um, and and that speaks to, to everything that's been happening at the, the ICG over the last few weeks. I think that's immensely powerful. But then the other real field of, of global attention, and, and by the way, I mean, just before I get on to global, there is this thing of some people saying, forget about UK politics. It doesn't matter what Keir Starmer thinks. It doesn't matter what Rishi Sunak thinks. And to some extent in grand geopolitics, that is true. But it is still important 
as a representation of what this country is. And we live here and we want to see the people that represent us and take decisions on our behalf have morals. And it is a problem if they don't. Even and it's, and it's especially worse, actually, if they're not even players. They're pretending to be players on the grand geopolitical chessboard. And in order to pretend, they, they, they take up really um, disgraceful positions. So I, I think UK politics matters in that sense, but not in the grand, um, uh, in the grand scheme of things. So, I, and before you go into global, so just because I wanted to talk about UK politics and, and labor, because it is in the news as well that whether they're starting to get worried that the Muslim vote might, they might not have it or whether it's even important or not. I mean, what's your sense of what's going on with Muslims, particularly in England, and who they're going to vote for in Labour and everything that's going on with, have they lost the Muslim vote? And then what? who are Muslims going to vote for? They're not going to bother voting for anyone? What's your kind of It's a big problem for the parties. Uh, and particularly uh, Labour have commissioned... Uh, polling on this now belatedly, it's going to be very hard to roll back because once you've seen the leader of a party say that they don't care. I mean, this is a problem not just within the Muslim community. As soon as someone sees a potential prime minister say they don't care if a group of people have don't have food and don't have water and don't have electricity, the message that goes out is this person could do anything to anybody. This isn't just a, just a Palestinian issue. It becomes a wider issue. And this also is playing out in the US where the people I'm speaking to um, in, in America are saying, look, we're, we're not going out. We, we, we campaigned hard for Biden. And, you know, when you consider the way the US politics plays out, there's 300 million odd people in the US, but previous US elections have boiled down to 50,000 voters in five states. Um, it's that close. And some of those states are hugely Muslim areas like Michigan. So this is going to be consequential if Muslims are saying, okay, we're not going to go out and vote for Biden. Um, and we don't, we're not saying we're going to vote for Trump. We're just staying home because we just can't take part in this charade. We can't bring ourselves for someone that's overseen this number of deaths, funded it, supported it. There's no way we're getting involved. That's a problem. Um, for the Democrats um, as well in the US. Um, and I think, you know, politics changes quickly. There's been, they've, they've made catastrophic mistakes here. Can they fix it? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, nothing's ever irretrievable, but, but they're going to have to really yeah. try hard here, but they don't seem to be doing that so is far. Because is it not the same danger here that Muslims are, you know, you spend decades saying get the Muslim vote out, you know, it's important, all the campaign, the re-election. Um, a, lot of Muslim, a number of Muslims that I speak to in England say, well, we're not going to bother because... Um, we're totally disillusioned with Labour. I mean, even the Labour MPs, the Muslim ones, have been, you know, calling out Islamophobia and and you know uh, racism and you know within the Labour Party and then never mind Conservatives. So, is there not that danger? And what's that implication then for the Muslims in this country as well, or not? You know, getting disillusioned in the whole system and not voting for anyone. There's a difference between passivity and not voting. And that, when, when, when I think about passivity, it's just, I don't care. Um, that's just all happening and it's all rancid. I'm staying away from it. But not voting, you can still take part. 
there's going to be a campaign, there's going to be hustings, turn up at events, make your voices known, you know, get stuff on social media, write to the newspapers. All of these things are are taking part in that process and that festival of politics, which is which is about to to emerge and lead up to elections on, on both sides of, of the Atlantic. So I, I think there's still ways that Muslims can make their voice known. Um, and... I, I think they will. I, I don't think this is going to go away. I don't. I don't think you're going to see a community just saying, "Look, I can't be bothered playing a part in civic society." As as, as I was saying earlier, I think that that's going to be there. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think I think it's so important to continue to engage. I mean, when we when all of this kicked off, we did a let you write to your MP campaign with our tool. Over two hundred thirty thousand people wrote to their MP, many for the first time. Right. So political awakening is a good thing. I think we're obviously statistics and all these numbers and things, you know. So sorry, was that Muslims writing to? Their MP, yeah. So we just we drafted a little letter, you put postcode in and just Yeah, and these in. are people that struggle to do anything and yeah, they've done we, that. We actually got to so 230,000 people engaged with that. It's 10% of the Muslim community in this country. That's, that's incredible. Well, that's yeah. pretty good numbers. Let me put that in my yeah, final year report. Yeah. yeah, okay, pass the biscuits. So for me, that was, that's a powerful, that is powerful. And I think it's um, conflating, th- people conflate ne- the wrong kinds of negatives, right? So politic, let's look even before... Um, October 7th, before Israel and Palestine. So if you look before it, okay, political apathy is rife in our community. So obviously MCB and many other organizations led on voter Muslim registration drives and turnout to vote and all the rest of it. So it's all there. And if you think about it, most of our community are very passive to it. Oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it'll be fine or whatever. We have an odd little Islamophobia about counterterrorism, all the usual stuff, but people are just generally don't tend to participate. It's a cultural thing. We're not used to doing it. We don't think it's important. Gaza stuff happened, and now we've got a demand, right? With an MP we may or may not have engaged with, with a counsellor or with anybody in civic society. And so understanding how, I mean, you know, there were mobs of people outside MPs' offices. It was a lot of intimidation, all sorts. And, you know, people can protest. I'm not saying anything against that, but I'm saying is that, you know, understanding how to utilize not just your vote, but everything that happens before and after it's important. So we're going to be still doing voter registration drives. We're still going to be doing the manifesto and the pledges and all those things. But I think it's about political literacy and getting out of political apathy, which is not going to be just on this issue. Because if you really ask people, how much do you know about this, the the policies? Okay, what are all the manifesto pledges saying on Palestine and recognition? But what else are they saying on other things? And so I think it's even more critical to continue to engage. Obviously, that doesn't mean you need to support or not. I mean, I'll leave it to people to decide what they want to do and rightfully hold MPs to account because that's, you know, they're, they're paid for by the public. But I think it's important to understand we don't just condemn people and write people off or write political parties off because how many, how many of us have been members or are members? You know, so I think it's a, I think we're on a journey, as Osama said, we're a really young community. We should know how to feel empowered about our voice, but also be conscious of our reality. And I think it's a it's a difficult one, particularly with this issue. This is a very like if this is a difficult this is life or death issue, actually. This is one of the most hardest ones to say tell people, oh, you should just so I can't just say, oh, just engage, but I think it's being mindful that does engagement only happen at this general election? You know, so I think there's a lot more to think about. Chief. 
A lot to think about. <laughs> what point you introduce? You're gonna drop some wisdom because the slightly cynical perspective yeah, is: yeah. look, um, is it not a danger that the Muslims now are saying, "Well, look, um, okay, we've seen the double standards again, right?" With you know what was how were the Ukrainians treated? Uh, yeah, yeah the, the, the thing the thing is to pinpoint on what basis is there double standards. So, so but. It's, you know, if you t look at the number of narratives of double standards, and we can go into detail of that, then Islamophobia mm -hmm. and the hostility amongst refugees and asylum seekers mm -hmm. and the media, you know, um, and the kind of, you know, we've been here before and now we've even had Muslims, compared to 30 years ago, we've got Muslim MPs, mayors, etc. And I, I think there are people feeling, well, actually, and the shift in global politics to other countries, you know, South Africa has made this move, the BRICS, you know, countries, are, are, you know, the, the the shift in global power is saying, well, actually, economically, even Britain, everything else is kind of, you know, um, heading a certain way. And so I wonder whether a lot of Muslims are, or a number of Muslims are feeling disillusioned now. To say, well, actually, we are next as a community. We've tried to engage. We've tried to get, you know, do all the things that we've been encouraged to do. And, you know, we still can't influence. You know, the fact that, you know, we have um, senior people in Scotland that are at the top of their, you know, two Muslims in charge of the parties. Um, and even despite that, you know, they can't necessarily change, you know, Keir Starmer's view on even calling for a ceasefire, you know, to say, well, actually, how much more influence and power are we really arguing for? Because even despite that, you know, the outcome's not really changing. So I just w worry that there's a, there could be a sense of disillusionment and people are saying, well, and, and my worry is, do you think that could lead to anger and going back the way to those things we saw a number of decades, you know, about that radicalization, marginalization, people wanting to now, you know, re react in a more militant way. And and I, because we saw that after 9-11 and after Iraq, you know, for a number of years. Or do you think that's just totally mis misjudging no, I, I think, where I, we are? I think we haven't taken stock of the degree of disillusionment amongst young people. And I think that's, that's yet to be understood because there's such cosmic, systemic shifts taking place much more than the Iraq war, much more than anything, even 9-11, not because of the, the, the degree of violence, but because of how it's opened up very clear um, breaks within the Western narrative of who they are, which is the problem. It's not about who Muslims. Muslims are sure who they are. They believe in more, a moral code. They believe, like, when, you know, this thing happened on October the 7th, you know, before having to think about it, I, you know, I was doing this podcast with Zubair. I said, people who were signed up to Hamas would not have done X, Y, and Z. I know that for a fact, because I can see their faces and they would never live with themselves if they did that. Did it happen from other people going in? That's a different thing, but they would never have done these things. I know that because they have a moral code. I think the problem now is young Muslims and all, even people that are older, they're thinking, well, the West, the, the people that we looked up to the most critical voices in the West, like Jürgen Habermas, like the second generation Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School was set up to answer the question, why did the proletariat not take over and gain power from the capitalists, bourgeoisie? And they basically said it was because 
of the fact there's entrenched structures in place that stop that natural process taking place. And so they were answering the question, how do we do that? It was basically around the issue of communication and that the, the capitalist system controls how people think through controlling the public space. So Habermas is at the forefront of that idea of the public space being where all the civic society is and everyone gets to say what they want and impacts policy, impacts war and peace. And then he comes up with a, a statement, I think three weeks ago now, basically saying the German people have a, a, an absolute requirement upon them to support the state of Israel regardless of what happens, meaning that you, you shout down Palestinian demonstrations, voices within German society in the public sphere that speak in favor of Palestinians. And this is the same person that Muslims have been using for all their kind of social justice, um, you know, kind of initiatives. And all of a sudden you see that the person who is the kind of mastermind of what we've been using to press for our, our case to be heard is now clearly doesn't understand his own ideas. And once that trickles down, that's going to be dangerous because once that trickles down, you realize that this whole idea that you can fight for your rights that are given to you within a civic context, that they're not going to be given to you. I think at that point, the disillusionment will be real. And the propensity to radicalization, once it trickles down, will be far more than anything we've ever seen. I think people are also, I think people are also taking hope. I think that that disillusionment risk is real, but the people are also taking hope from the people that are speaking out about what's happening. And you know, you see prominent members of of the Jewish community have come mm -hmm. out in all the countries around the world, and it's incredible. You know, when you know in the Muslim tradition, speaking out for the truth, mm -hmm. even if it's against yourself, is something deep within within our core beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to see other people doing well, it as well is just fascinating in this episode the Jewish voices yeah. being well, ostracized from their own community yeah. for being self-hating Jews I mean it's just been so many, humbling yeah, there's absolutely. so many people like yeah, that yeah. now they're not yeah. ostracized they're, they're a community mm. in themselves mm. and one of the, my abiding memories of this entire few months will mm. visually will be mm that movement of, and it was Jewish activists, going and occupying train stations mm. seemingly spontaneously. It was just such a visible thing. Like the likes, you know, we've never seen protest scenes like that. It was, it was really ingenious in, in the iconography of it. So I think, yeah, there's, there's cause for, for disillusionment, but, but also I, I would urge um, young Muslims and anyone feeling that, you know, also look that there are people supporting the causes of, of truth and justice. Let's join forces. So there's a question, I think, <clears throat> amplifying that that type of episode in New York, for yeah. example, to the people that are, are open to being disillusioned. My, my fear is that they live in bubbles and the mm. YouTube clips they watch and the yeah. social media they follow doesn't allow that kind of narrative which is very, 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 very optimistic. Because essentially, I think if you just go to the, the, the Palestinian uh, Jewish conflict, the, the key component here is the Jewish people and that community coming to terms with its own trauma. Because if they can come to terms with their own trauma, they can realize that the only way of releasing themselves from what happened in the Holocaust is not to inflict on other people. You see the people at Gabor Mate, isn't it? It just gives really iconic, you know, talks about this. Um, somewhere you can say anything else? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is really profound. I think it's important for us to, to internalize this, that what we're engaged here is the business of persuasion. You know, you know, what Israel is able to do is brute force. 
is one of the, one of the most powerful militaries on the planet. It can act seemingly with impunity. Um, what we have is not access to that. What we have is the ability to persuade um, others and them that that's wrong. And I think this is where I think we've, we've got to think about our theories of change. I think the UK, so, so the UK situation is important. The US situation is important. But if we play back to what's the thing, and in, in, in NGO charity speak, you talk about the theory of change. What's the theory of change here? So can you just say, for people that don't know what that is, can you explain? Theory of change, you want something to happen. How is it you going to make it happen? And if, let's say, what we want is for um, everybody between the river and sea to live in peace and justice and equality, how is that going to be achieved? And you could take a view that I think a lot of people do, that what we've got to do is persuade the United States to bring its forces to bear, um, not so much militarily, but, but certainly political pressure to make change. Personally, I think that there's not a lot of evidence to say that that will A, happen, because there's a whole load of movement that you've got to do domestically within the US, which would take a huge amount of money to pump into the, the political system, um, and a lot of cultural baggage and right-wing lunacy that's going to be very hard to shift. And we'll, 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 you're talking millions and millions of people that you're trying to, trying to influence there. So I, I, I think that's... And what Biden's shown is that, by the way, Biden's gone and tried both strategies. There's been a lot of criticism, rightly, of Biden over the last few months. But Joe Biden, I think, was also scarred by being sent by President Barack Obama 10 years ago when he was Obama's VP. He was literally sent to Israel uh, and told to tell Netanyahu, stop building settlements, just stop it so that we can try something in terms of long-term sustainable peace. He flew in gave that message, and as soon as he flew out, Netanyahu did what? He said, build more settlements. So what Biden learned from that, I think for this time was, he tried to hug the, the famous, infamous now, hug, hug BB strategy. Hug him close, make him feel wanted, make him feel loved, and therefore we might have influence. And what that's been proven is that doesn't work either, and you don't have the, the comfort of at least having the moral high ground. So what that tells me is America is actually not influential here. There's a lot of posturing. You've got Blinken going around, um, trying to speak to lots of people, trying to be relevant. But nothing seems to move BB except one thing potentially, which is Israeli public opinion. And what I think people that love and peace and justice have got to think about is that what we assume is what America does and covert spy agencies as they go and meddle in other countries. As I said, Blinken's flying around the region, social media's pumping in messages, there's disinformation campaigns. That's the way the world is working. Uh, and that's how great powers are, are, are making shifts. And if the people who love peace and justice are also a great power, which I think they are, we've got to think carefully about this because actually the easiest way to a solution here is persuading the Israeli people that something different is possible. And if you if you if you take pop Israeli public opinion, there's about 10-20% who are peaceniks. They're they're with this agenda. You've got 40% on the right, 40-50% maybe, um, who are in for the settlements, in for taking over Gaza, 
Uh, but you've still got 30 odd percent, which is global in the middle, who are just worried. And to, to Sheikh Rizwan's point, there's a complex here, and I think Muslims have got to understand this deeply. There's a deep-seated trauma within the Jewish community, which is rational. We've got to be clear about this. You know, six million people were gassed during the Second World War. That was not that long ago. Centuries of pogroms across Europe. And Jewish people brought up with this. They didn't know about this, and, and they should because this happened. So this is within them. And, and when they see things like October the 7th, that brings all of that to the fore. And any people have a self-preservation tendency. Uh, that, that's what makes us human and that's what makes us alive. We, we look after ourselves. And we've got to think about, okay, how is it that that reasonable opinion within the Israeli Jewish community can have those fears, how can they feel confident that they can live in peace alongside the Palestinian people? What is it that needs to happen? And, and what we're talking about here is probably about 3 million people need to be persuaded. That's a doable project, if it's thought about that way, that, that middle opinion, with the right messages, with the right kind of targeting, the right kind of campaign, I think augmented with all the legal activity, this is this really needs to be thought about much more deeply than it has been the case up till now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's leverage, legal leverage. And I mean, my thing is where we're active is essentially if we were thinking it's not where we need to be active. That issue of persuasion is just a no-brainer because the community that's inflicting this is a traumatized community. And and, and as you said, a lot, of Muslims, a lot of Muslims will not want to hear that. And it's, there's, there's rationale behind it, but also for us as a community that wants um, a settlement and a closure to this for the Palestinian people, we have to be able to facilitate that in some way, get that message out as well. And what's your sense then of the whole normalization that was happening or still happening with Saudi and UAE, etc.? Um, what's your sense whether that, I mean, was that part of that? idea of giving them security is that something that um because muslims have many i mean there's lots of opinions about what's happening in saudi arabia a lot the 2030 vision and um so what's your sense where that fits into all of this i think that faded in with Mohammed and so i mean Mohammed bin Salman basically said this i think this is relation to climate change but he said like if if something's going to give me 0.1 percent of GDP growth, then I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in that category. I, I, I don't think there's a whole bunch of growth there between trade normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But the interesting thing that happened before October the 7th and after is that before October the 7th, that normalization thing was happening over the heads of the Palestinian people. What I found talking to, to Saudi insiders after October 7th is that that whole thing was repositioned. So what they were saying was, Look, if normalization happened, of course, uh, a peace deal with the Palestinians and recognition of a Palestinian state was going to be part of that. Now, I don't remember that being part of any discussion before October the 7th, but that's what now seems to have emerged. Uh, what the Saudis seem to be saying in uh, after Anthony Blinken's visits is, okay, normalization could be on the table, 
even after everything that's happened, but basically the price has gone up and that's going to have to be, and I, I think they need to change the language because the language they're using at the moment is there'll be a pathway to a Palestinian state. Whereas I think, especially given they're going to be asked to foot the bill for, for reconstruction and that's going to be a hefty, hefty bill. I think what they need to be saying is not pathway because that's, that's too fuzzy. It needs to be Palestinian state, U.S. recognition, EU recognition, alongside, by the way, the rest of the world does recognize a Palestinian state already, but we need that recognition because it comes with some trappings. We'll reinvest, we'll do some normalization because a lot of Arab states and Turkey already have normalization. Saudi Arabia will, will join that cohort, um, and that can be something of a sustainable way forward, but it also needs to go with confidence building and, and bringing people together, and, and a lot of thought needs to go into the, uh, the grand strategy behind that as well. And Sheikh, you, you've spent a lot of years in, in Arab, Arab countries, you're in Turkey now. What's your sense of where these Muslim countries fit into all of this and whether that is something palatable and whether the public opinion will accept it, whether that's, you know, what's your sense whether... Well, I mean, I was in Damascus and I think we used to mark apparently the date when the Syrians defeated the Israelis and the Golan Heights when I realized, I mean, I knew very well that they lost the Golan Heights on that day. <laughs> and so their sense of history, reality is slightly skewed. And that, that's not just Syria, it's all, all, all around. But I think what's interesting is the idea of norm normalization. I think, I, I think Muslims don't understand what that means because it means that you can take to task on behalf of of of, of some of, of being equals in a way you couldn't if they weren't if there wasn't normalization normalization is not accepting them as an oppressive state it's opening up the challenge channels within which you can challenge them so i think even if you agree or not the whole point is you have to understand what it means to normalize and what i think the kind of um, especially in the west the kind of um, social sphere of influencers present it as is selling out islam or or siding with the oppressors, and, and the simplification of the discussion is is obviously going to trickle down. And so, if you say, "Okay, let's think about normalizing," it means that you're actually you've got you know blood on your hands, or it becomes quite gruesome at some point. So there's no thought going through this. Normalization is a process through which you you can you can actually take people to task, take states to task. A lot of conventions come into play as well once you normalize as well. So. It seems to be natural that you normalize, especially on the basis that you know that that is that state will remain there. It's not going to go anywhere. So there's this there's this sense that people think well it will disappear or we will make it disappear or there's a sense that we're waiting for Salahuddin Ayyubi to come and he will he will take it back. Do you understand? That's not how it works. And that's not how that's thing for me is that's not how our fiqh works. That's not how the sira understood the world to work. That's what's frustrating for me is that the the voices that are coming out and normalizing this kind of discussion are religious voices that say it's, tre it's treachery to talk about normalization. It doesn't mean I'm talk I'm saying normalize. I'm saying you have to understand what normalization means. And for me, that's from a religious perspective, from our, from our texts, and not based upon uh, some kind of theory about you know. Um, critical race theory or you know some kind of theory about um granting rights to people without a, a religious kind of underpinning 
Zara, you got any thoughts in terms of... Oh, yeah. I think we've got the global experts here. Mm. <clears throat> what I thought I would pick on was um, the non-Muslim world. And I think Osama mm. made some really good points that um, and Sheikh too regarding narrative. So what we see as clickbait material is what tends to feed a certain narrative about the world and how it works and what tends to make us feel comfortable. So... The Muslim world has failed, okay, but when did it really work? <laughs> um, we neglect the fact that not like over 100 countries want ceasefire. We neglect global solidarity. We, we kind of like, we like it, but we don't resonate it deeply, which is the message that we are a marginal, we're a minority community that works well with others if we actually work with them. And many people who love peace and justice are on this journey with us. Many people want a Britain that actually they're not looking at that on their television screens. And many people are very concerned about where the world is going. And and so some so normalization in a different context is actually about not making people out to be bad guys or villains because they haven't liked or shared or posted. Remember someone said you've been really quiet on Palestine because I hadn't put an Instagram story up in a while. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so people like your, your silence, you know, and I think being able to work with other communities is very important, but also understanding so many people care because it's innate in a human being to care. And what we're seeing is, you know, this wholesale destruction and thinking, well, how how can people like that possibly do that? But as you said, it's hard, hard wiring. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And then also questions around the Muslim world. We do also associate that with a couple of countries who are the Muslim world. But it's much broader. I mean, I also did international relations and law and stuff. So I think, but sometimes that can estrange our communities. And maybe some of the listeners, it's just getting too, it's getting too complicated now. What are the simple realities? And as you were saying, what are the solutions? What are the way forward? And I think one, one thing is about perspective. Are you really open to all perspectives? Or is it just the one that makes you feel comfortable? And, you know, navigating thought is about being a little bit uncomfortable and challenging your perspective. And so, for example, we can all agree in terms of human rights abuses and what's going on. In a, like, yeah, it's literally called occupied territory. So international law even agrees. Right. So that's agreed. Where we're, where we're in some ways disagreeing is our approach to justice or our approach to the reality or whether as um, you're talking about things like the Holocaust, whether really we want to internalize that or not, whether we want to, you know, and also our expectations of the community and its leadership and its scholarship. So for some scholars, they may be responding to what the congregation is telling them they have to say, or it could be their own philosophy and where they're coming from. But I think ultimately in terms of the road ahead and the journey forward, you know, a general election could or could not be imminent, you know, but things are going to change in the political leadership in this country. What's not going to change is that we're still going to be here talking about this stuff and other stuff like it. So um, I was listening to another podcast and someone was saying that um, Amazon does this and other companies, they don't look at what's changing. They look at what doesn't change. People want cheap prices and fast delivery. You have to look at what doesn't change. We're always angry about something. We're always going to have a conflict or a disaster. We've been taught to be reactive and responsive. So when it's quiet, we're just, all right, it's fine, everything's good. So I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is the learning of this. Uh, the journey forward is still going to be complicated and we're going to have to navigate and it's not in our hands. 
But I think for the first time, we saw that America, the US, and a few others are very isolated from the global reality. So that's very clear. But the second thing is what doesn't change is that we are still a minority. And actually, happily so in the sense that, yeah, it's not a Muslim country, but we've lived really well here and we continue to live well here. Islam flourishes very well in the UK. So that has to be then a strength to building better. And so 20 years ago, this response would have been really different. How we would have handled it would have been really different. Now we've got a growing and emerging younger generation who have to, in some ways, be wanting to take part, wanting to step up. The question I always say to my lot is, well, you know, they're all going to say, well, what's in it for me? Why should I step forward? And I think that's kind of the interplay of, of where I was looking at it. And if I can just go on a slight tangent for a short bit, is you spoke a bit about, um, I guess, you know, what hasn't changed. And one of the big things is obviously media. And you've done a lot of media work throughout you this time, isn't it? I mean, what's your kind of, what have you learned the most about your engagement with the? Because because we've always brought up for the last Shahil know you know Sam will know many many decades saying it's all the media you know so, and we've seen that change a lot now and we've seen a lot happening just now in terms of you've obviously got the mainstream media then you've got all these kind of alternatives now you've got you know online and social media and we've touched upon about you know, the whole idea of you know, clickbaiting. And that's massive. You know, you got Piers Morgan stuff that totally blew up. You got Basim Youssef, you know, all of these kind of things that have really massive. I mean, and, and you've done a lot of media before this, I think, which mm. is your own other stories when you got MCB and you're kind of obviously on the radio. Women's Hour, Women's yeah. Women's Hour, and that mm. kind of all just kind of grew in. And I'll come on to Sam as well, because obviously this is your domain as well in terms of PR and media, but what, what have you kind of learned? What's your reflection that what needs to change or, um, cause I guess there is that kind of longer term thing as well. How do we get our narrative out? What is our message as Muslims in this country? Um, and you know, how do we build bridges, et cetera? So, I mean, what's your reflections about? Yeah, I think when I got, a, yeah, this whole media? space, I think when I got elected, baptism of fire, cause that women's hour radio for, I mean, I was averaging about nine interviews a day, Becoming famous, about nine, interviews, nine a day. interviews a day. Yeah, so it's quite a lot. Everybody wanted a piece, and I didn't know I was famous, and you know, became a public figure in like an hour. So because you're female as well as Muslim, that was other big. I think people like, couldn't comprehend how mainly moms and men had voted like a young 29-year-old from Glasgow as the Secretary General of the, the Muslim Council. But maybe, and I think MCB had maybe a little stagnant, so it was like a big breaking news story. Generally speaking, at that point, a lot of the media was positive, but there were pockets of it which were just not having it. And that's where I had that really hostile interview. Uh, but I also had commentators saying I was a pleasant face away from a bearded eye, be a cross-eyed bearded man. <laughs> so, and I quote. Um, so I think at the start, what I realized was we had changed, but certain segments of the media had not. And as I fast forward to today, it's still such a powerful machine. It's so powerful and narrative and spin. And I think it, what I've realized in the three years I've been in, in term is that media has very strong narratives on Islam and Muslims, and they haven't changed actually. Even the better bits of media are not. They only come to us for Islamophobia, counterterrorism, immigration, you know, like really negative stuff. We don't really have any other topics that we talk about. And Ramadan, of course, and we'll give that. I was in BBC News, Six O'clock News, about an old copy of the Quran found in the Cadbury collection in Birmingham. 
That's a pretty nice one. So, yeah, so okay, we get we do get some of the some of the historical wonders. I'll give you that. Yeah. But generally speaking, yeah. the hot button ones are always not very nice. And and then with this um, Israel Palestine stuff, it was like um, there was a very strong media machine ready. And I think what everybody, we all realized was the PR at the start was just, it was focused on a stifling any pro-Palestinian advocacy because that was, they knew it was coming, but it was also dehumanization in a very strong way. And I did an interview where I was asked um, about Hamas five times, do you condemn Hamas? So, well, I'm a British organization that represents British Muslims. So what have I got to do with a foreign entity? But what's your line on it? So well, we condemn the loss of all innocent life. But what's, and it just went on. I was just like, you know, well, because the issue was we are being conflated with what? And why are you asking me about this? And it's that whole, again, you're positioning certain things together. So I think the only thing, though, that was really exciting and different was the growth of social media and uh, the journalists everywhere in the world and in Palestine and in Gaza. And there's been some remarkable stories that have been shared because then what happened was your Sky and your BBC and all the other outlets were having to follow their stories because they were trending. So they had to cover it. They still had their own little words and stuff. So even yesterday there was the, the shooting in the hospital, you know, the, the death squad. And then Sky had it on and then BBC had it on. So they would never have covered this kind of story before. So I think... Things have pushed it, but narrative is very difficult. And what I would say is that, you know, having enough, I mean, we're all traumatized in that respect of wanting to take media interviews. Not that many of us that want to do it. And there's no coming back once you do it. So I, I understand where people are at, that they're not necessarily putting their hand up saying, yep, I want to take on the media. Because there's no such thing as a easy interview. You might, you might do okay, but you never know what's coming. And I've had the that other side of it. But the other thing is that, when we do do it really well, it's so powerful. And I think the Palestinian ambassador has been one of the great, I think probably just articulate, confident, he just smashes it. And there's been some others like that. But you saw Piers Morgan is such an interesting one. I, I was saying to a friend, I was like, who's playing and who's being played? Because you think with his show, I mean, we all kind of end up tuned in, especially when he had some very, you know, and you're kind of like, he's getting lots of clicks and likes and follows and his ratings are going up, but then we're all really angry at him. And then people are, you know, and now it's kind of turned into some other little drama. So there's this argument of every platform is important, so we should take it. There's also an argument of sometimes it's better to to not take it if you can. And Have you been invited on? I have not. Wow. Uh, I know. Thank you. Piers Morgan, if you are listening. No, Piers. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready. Would you go in? I think it just depends, doesn't it? See, this is the thing, though. It's I always think, can I give a benefit if I go on it, right? I'm I'm gonna just say I'm not gonna be crazy on there. I'm not gonna fight with him. I'm not. I don't think I'm gonna give him what he wants, which is a riled up, frantic, crazy. You know. Well, some as a PR from a PR perspective, would you advise Zara if she was invited to go on or not? I wouldn't advise anyone to go on Piers Morgan show. <laughs> Why? I mean, the Basim Yusuf thing was. You know, his satire, everything. That was, was brilliant. That was brilliant, wasn't Look, it? That was... It depends what you're trying to do. Mm. The Basim Yusuf thing was entertainment. Yeah. And it was some things that people agree with him love to hear. They love the argument. They love the cut and thrust. Did it persuade anybody? I'm willing to bet no, it didn't. Because the whole thing, the Piers, the Piers Morgan phenomenon is fascinating because 
it is a result of social media algorithms. So what he's figured out is, I think it's actually broadcast on Sky News Australia, but everyone thinks it's a YouTube show. And what he's figured out is that, look, this my brand of bombast and argumentation is heaven sent for these algorithms which favour disputation and people shouting at each other in, in a studio. Um, this isn't winning hearts. It's not winning hearts. It's not winning minds. Um, if you want entertainment, that's all it is. It's entertainment fluff, uh, but it's not the serious business of, of change making. So it's deliberately just so that you can get sound bites that mm. will go viral. Get sound that's bites. It, people, people who, who people who agree with it will will share it's it. Polar. Taking polar. it further, people who disagree with it will foam with the mouth and also irately comment, which makes it go further. And Piers Morgan makes lots of money. Yeah. That's all that's happening there. Um, and yeah, Basfi Yusuf has, has made a name for himself, but is is this helping? This is not helping. Um, and that's the counsel I would give is that if you, if anyone's thinking of going on, just, just realize that you're part of a game. Uh, but if you're going on as a serious change maker, you're, the risks are high. And benefits are, are very questionable. Well, we saw, <laughs> the, you know, the GP Abdul Wahid that mm. went on, and you know, at, you know, obviously that's his livelihood and everything's been affected and being reported. So it, it has grave consequences. One thing that we we've spoken a bit about Sam is and Zara kind of introduced that is about, you know, the Muslims need a message, you know, and you've spoken and and I think it's more linked to our, some of our discussion about Islamophobia. But, you know, you spoke very eloquently about a message, a messenger, you know, how we kind of influence things. I mean, do you want to say a little bit around your thoughts in that kind of area? Because I think that's quite fascinating in terms of what is the narrative of Muslims in, in this country or worldwide um, and what we need to grapple with and how you influence change, you know? I th you know, I, I think we've been talking about Islamophobia for a long time. And we have suffered Islamophobia in, in, in the way that it's been defined. I think the way we've gone about tackling it is wrong. I think we've, we've tried to um, adopt the approach um, that's used to tackle anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, of course, real, disastrous consequences over, over the centuries. Um, but because it's been real for such a long time, with those consequences during the Holocaust, Second World War, there is an awareness of that and also a special guilt that's felt uh, within Europe about that. And there, there should be a guilt uh, because of that. Muslims can't adopt that tactic because that same history isn't there. And even if people point to colonialism and millions of people dying in, in India, it's it's just not seen in the same way. The education level isn't there. And to get people up to that level of awareness will take a long time. And most crucially, this isn't the tactics that sit within the Islamic tradition. You know, the Prophet didn't, after he was <clears throat> expelled from, from Mecca, he didn't arrive in Medina and start writing reports about Islamophobia to nearby tribes. He sent uh, um, messages to nearby tribes, but they were with a message of hope, humanity, of, of emancipation, of, of the future in this life and the next life um, that were attractive. And that's what, what galvanized Islamic civilization to, to, to where it ended up. And that's why I mean by a positive narrative that 
if we're going to tackle, you know, there's a, there's a classical thing in, in messaging that, um, <laughs> actually I think I'm quoting, um, Mad Men here and, uh, uh, Don Draper, which is if, if you don't like the narrative, um, if, if you don't like the story, the telling change the story. Uh, and that's what we've got to do. But for that, we've got to know what that story is. And I think one of the things, you know, I'm grappling with what is that story. And I think we've got to think what's that positive hope that we can give humanity, which is feeling bruised and battered at the moment. People feel left behind. They feel that there seems to be so much promise in the world for so few people. What about us? Why Why is it that we can't get a toehold? Why don't we have basic dignity here? Uh, why is it that, you know, I, I saw Gordon Brown on on the television a week or two ago, and he seemed to be proudly trumpeting this idea of multi-banks, that rather than getting away from food banks, we'll augment the food banks, so we'll also be a clothing bank and a nappy bank and all sorts. Of, and he seemed really pleased that this would be a massive step forward for society. And I just thought, this is not dignity. This is not what the British public were brought up to believe is their lot in life. So I, I think Muslims got to think about this deeply. I think we've got an economic, possible economic prescription to this. We've been kind of tiptoeing around the Islamic finance agenda for a long time and what that might mean in terms of bringing social justice in, in this country and across the world. I think there's a spiritual message and I think people are looking for, for meaning. There's so much talk about what is consciousness in relation to artificial intelligence that things can be created and, you know, who 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 are we? And I think people have a deep-seated desire for answers, answers which potentially faith can provide. But we, for that, we've got to have cogent, um, cogent, attractive things to say that 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 connect. And and there's there's people that can test these things, hone these things, and 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 get them across. And I think we've just got to get much smarter about that, so that when if people do go on the media, whether it's Piers Morgan or or anything else, that actually the thing I notice when 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 I'm when I'm seeing so many of um, our people is that they're all saying different things. Even on even on Gaza, right? There isn't a kind of thing. Um, and certainly on just generally when we're asked questions about a whole uh, array of things that you you know you you'll get a hundred different questions you get a million different answers and and there needs to be something of a thread running through that and I think that's something that we need to develop. Yeah, it's fascinating actually. Sheikh, your thoughts on we spoke about media, we've spoken about some of this messaging, other things. What are your kind of thoughts and your perspectives in terms of? I mean, they're all controversial, so I don't know if I can. Some <laughs> <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> You won't get like, cancelled. Yeah. Oh my goodness! No, no. I mean, just I did a course on the art of persuasion. Because <laughs> no, I, I think yeah. just to give it context, I think yeah. I think not being biased, you know, I think one thing people appreciate about you, Sheikh, is that you know it's it's taking things from a very different perspective and maybe a deeply thought that maybe what we get from some of our other religious leaders, and I think that's what we, you know we need to hear a wee bit because I think you, you know there's a certain insight that you have and reflections which I think are important to get across so mm. you can be as controversial as you want everything that was being said there had some I, I wanted to inter kind of interrupt it, please, and, and, please uh, do I had a thought too on one but I think I, 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 I wish you'd interrupted me actually Osama pinged the thought in my no, head no, too it was yeah. interesting inter it was agreeable in in interruptions Um. I think in terms of messaging, I think what's important here is courage. And in terms of like the whole concept of Piers Morgan, I think 
with messaging, it's all about you have to you have to um, pin down who you're speaking to. So in 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 a studio, are you engaging with the interlocker, or are you speaking beyond them to the person watching to the consumer? And I think the the big mistake that I see, which is a cardinal mistake, I don't know, you're the expert here, Osama, and you're the practitioner. <laughs> the student. <laughs> the student. And the, and, and the, yeah, it's, it's, that's the person you're, you're, you're speaking to. And you're almost looking through, or it's almost like this kind of, hopefully a smooth martial arts move where you're just bypassing the person into... The, the living room of Janice, who's like 65, never seen a Muslim. And she says, wow, I love these people. That's the whole purpose. And that comes from the prophetic method. That he would possibly be sitting with a whole group of people and he would bypass all of them to speak to the person in a way that everyone didn't want him to speak. Like they would get angry. Like they would be assaulting somebody and the person would say, leave him alone. And he would speak to them and they're watching and he would communicate with that person. And if you're honest in the communication with that person, everything around you, even your interlocker will realize they need to change the way they engage with you. And that's really, I think that's really important that we do have, I think, very deep kind of um, um, sense, a, a very deep sense of origins of communication from the Prophet that there is something very deep in the way that he communicated and persuaded people. Because it is persuasion. It's about getting somebody who doesn't want to do something to do something that you want them to do for their benefit. And if it's for their benefit, they'll realize it and they'll perpetuate it. I think that's, in terms of communication, that's really important. I think the medium is the massage, is it? Or the message. <laughs> the problem, that is very important. You have to represent what you're saying but in terms of the, the narrative what Osama was saying is absolutely true about Islamophobia and how we place that within the, the civic sphere how we discuss ourselves and make sense of ourselves and what I think is happening and I've done a whole course I don't know if you did the course on Islam in the West whole section on Islamophobia and how it mirrors uh, anti, the definitions of anti-Semitism the anti-Semitism um, narrative and the the definitions have gone through the same kind of iterations that we're going through now in terms of Islamophobia. The iterations of Islam of, of anti-Semitism, the AHRA definition is actually targeted towards the criticism of the state of Israel, not Judaism specifically, which is why there's a counter definition, the, the Jerusalem Declaration, which honed in on the fact that we, we should actually just be focusing on um, anti-Jewish hate. And I think the current definition of Islamophobia, in a sense, is missing the trick here, which is that we have a wider message, I think, than, you know, mimicking the experience of the Jewish nation, which we cannot mimic because of the, the history of that. We have a much more positive, I think, message to um, give to people. And I think that means we need to reassess how we use the real phenomena of anti-Muslim hate and Islamophobia and how we can channel that into presenting our case as a faith community, spiritually, morally, ethically, and even economically, then we have a lot to say. And I think it stifles it if we start to play the victim card. Even though it's, it's natural, normal to do that, I think it's a cardinal mistake as a community that we do that. And I think at some point we have to stop and think as a community. And I remember you saying that certainly, I think in Scotland... You, you were wondering or 
the 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 people that are working on some of these definitions hadn't spoken to scholars mm. or hadn't spoken mm. to Islamic mm. kind of religious well, I, figures, and just I guess I, I think it's getting a holistic probably, perspective on yeah. these things because I think no, I I know the people that worked on the, the definition. I mean. I think it was the Runnymede Trust initially did the, the initial lifting, heavy lifting on the Islamophobia definition. And um, the people involved, I know them. And I think that the problem is that scholars cannot engage in that kind of discussion in a way that they're taken seriously. It's not it's not nuanced enough. It's not um, precise enough for the for that arena. So there's a reason why they're sidelined in some way. And so one of the big problems I think in the in, in the in the Muslim community in the UK. And in Europe, not as much in America, is that there's no onboarding of scholarly voices on the types of um, boards and committees that deal with these types of questions. Zara, do you do you find that like do you think there is a disconnect between all the stuff that's going on in the kind of the political sphere and you know the stuff that you're probably in the high level kind of meetings and how much of that is informed from apart from having maybe a token person to come up for an e-dinner or you know a scholar is there mm, engagement with scholars and do you get a sense of that or, or is that um well i wanted to issue? yeah there's two points so i wanted to pick on osama's point too yeah, i also thought you, whatever you let's want. pick no i thought because you, you made a very bold statement actually that you know on the which i do agree with <laughs> how we've communicated islamophobia and did you say has failed or was is not so it's up to that effect or it's not been a because i actually it's not going to work yeah, yeah when i came on board at the mcb and then i'll come on to the scholars pick on shikrizwan after that when i came on board it was so depressing you know the islamophobia rhetoric and it just hasn't gone very far. What do, you then, mean, what do you mean depressing? As in, like, it's it's a victim. It's a the paradigm is um, kind of a poor us. I mean, we present hard hitting stats. They're true. That's and that's not even all of it because we don't report hate crime, especially our communities. So there's a lot of hard hitting stats. There's a lot of kind of uh, what we don't have and why we don't have it. And it's it's always the negative. And I remember him, a very prominent professor said to me. So what does a reality look like without it? What are we actually working towards, right? I remember struggling at the time to think of it because I've been so programmed with the, the why it is so bad and what's... And it's kind of like, well, we're, what do you want to see the shift? Like, what does that look like for education? What does that look for... Like, what does that actually look like for us to change? And the reason I wanted to pick on that point is I think the problem is that there's not a lot of... Because we've kind of joined a certain... We've, we followed a certain path on this one... Now we kind of need to decide if we want to stay on it or take on <laughs> the pathways and points. But it's, it is like to shake it up will cause, you know, and the, the, that's one issue. The other is, is how is it translating to the audience we're trying to affect the change to, right? So I do loads of these sessions to the Janices and the Kellys and everybody else, you know, whether it's a big corporate company, because I'm obviously a celebrity now, so I get invited. And I talk to them about it with my own lived reality, like the interview that I went on or my experiences. And I say, you know, my very nature being a female, Muslim women in leadership, very visible, you know, that breaks a lot of stereotypes. And they're like, yeah, you're right, because it, it's not something they thought about. And so talking about it in a way that um, makes people come closer to where you're trying to get I'm not saying this is the perfect example for all scenarios. There's a place for the law and hate crime, and that's the hard stuff. But what about the institutional stuff? What about cultural capital and social capital? So I think in time, hopefully, inshallah, that will come about. And 
maybe as more of us come to the table. And the scholarly point is really tricky as well because which it becomes political again. Which scholars do you go to? How do you include them all? Then it becomes another like, oh, you went to that one, you didn't go to that one. And, and it's very tricky. I've always tried to engage scholars, but then as you know, right, it's either we're not taking you seriously or vice versa because how we're seeing, so for example, it might be we're looking at how is it going to allow the media, how is it going to allow the politicians, how is it going to allow the community, and the balance of that may be very different from the imams or the scholars, and and so in some ways we're all subject to a political trial or public trial, I should say, to our own community and congregants. Not everybody gets the privilege of saying whatever they like whenever they want, because otherwise no one's going to follow you, you know. That so so we could be, you know, it's a it's a tightrope. But we have to be bold and courageous to push a little bit, but also to identify that sometimes the people we're taking along in the journey, maybe they're not quite there yet. And so, and also um, from the policy side of things, that's where it's interesting is the definition and the idea of a definition being accepted is only one part of that process. There also has to be combating it. And so I think we've got lots of different challenges on that front. So I'm not saying it because I have the answers, but because I'm, actually also thinking Osama put lots of thoughts in my head as well which is like you know if at this moment we decided to do Islamophobia differently how would we do that right that's the question what would you guys come back with then on Sarah's points yeah that's <laughs> so, the point so, right so, We're so, still... so she, I mean it's a very valid point like which scholars do you go to are they representative you know scholars are not a homogenous group there's mm. no such thing so you know, how, how, how would you solve Zara's problem? She's saying that I want to engage mm-hmm. on many issues in MCB. I've got hundreds of mosques, hundreds mm-hmm. of organizations. How, how What's my process to get that scholarly input, opinions? So it depends what you want. Because you it, live amongst the scholars. You know yeah. the caliber mm-hmm. and the expertise so, between Yeah, it depends what, yeah, it depends on expertise, isn't it? It's, I mean, a scholar by definition is nothing special apart from and access to an expertise built over time, added to experience and added to a sense of longevity of of this whole process, I mean, that whole idea of history. And so that gives a different perspective, see, in Islamophobia, where it, it's the statistics are, are shocking, mm. but then it's a question of, okay, what do we want to achieve? Or more to the point of what do we want to convey to people that don't know about who we are? So that's on the basis of the fact that we are a religion that wants to give people access to what we have. So you don't, want to fr- you don't want to frustrate that. So for a scholar, essentially, the most important thing would be you'd want to frustrate the, the, the primary function of us as a community, which is to convey a message, which is of benefit to the people that will hear it, not to ourselves. So we're not a chosen people, by definition. We are a people that are chosen to give the message to other people, but not special in ourselves. So we can stray and we're responsible for, for, for straying. And so I think the issue is that scholars may have an expertise like in, in the application of Islamic law in minority situations, for example, in which case you'd go to an expert. And that's not going to be restricted by the fact he's or she's part of some organization. It's part based on the fact that they have expertise. So they're invited to a committee, a working group. It's on the basis of their, of their expertise, not on the, exp- uh, on the basis of their affiliation to a, a group that represents 700 mosques, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how you get around it, is you have to earn... The respect through your expertise. Okay. Yeah. Osama, lots you've you've started a you know trouble. Look at shaking the hornet's nest. So the question is, what what what, what should we do about Islamophobia? The question is, 
lots of points of what you've heard, <laughs> what your what your thoughts and. I think let's let, let's be constructive, and I think if anyone's doubting that change is possible, um, look at the the example from the LGBT community. Um, you know, you go back decades, and if if we think the Muslims are demonised, you know, uh, LGBT people um, in this country face much worse, much worse. Um, it was dangerous, um, and. The Stonewall riots is where the fight back began. And this was a case where an LGBT um, bar was raided by the police and people were badly beaten, badly beaten. And in the aftermath of that, activists got together and thought, what are we going to do? Now, what did they do? Did they organize a campaign or against homophobia and to talk about homophobia as the the chosen frame. They did not. And I think we know what they did. Um, that's where pride was born. So rather than take on a victimization slant and appear in the media and complain about being victims, they literally took to the streets in a sea of color and rainbows and invited people in, invited people to join them. And people did. And it wasn't built overnight. This took years and decades of sustained activity. Um, and I think that's now, I'm not saying we necessarily need to hit the street, but we need to, we need to think about this. What, what's the iconography of that? What's the tactics and the approach? And the approach is positivity, inclusion, working with people. Do you think uh, we could have mechanisms to do that? Of course, it was planned. Was it yes. planned, or did people yes, just this say was, this was, was organic? This was a deliberate, smart campaign. It's documented. It's planned. I mean, it, yeah. the, the iconography, the flag, everything was well planned. Because yeah. you've spoken about it in one of your yeah, courses. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I've spoken. Yeah. But sorry to interrupt, so I'll carry on here. Yeah, so you're saying... So I think, I think we, 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 what, what I'm talking about here is not pie in the sky. Um, so what we've taken is, over the last number of years, uh, an approach trying to mirror what the Jewish community do about their fears. But their situation is, I believe, unique. And I don't think other communities can can mirror that. And also, it's not within within our way uh, to to adopt that frame either, because we've we we have to be about a positive message, uh, and that positive message can work. And other communities have shown that. Uh, and I think we, we we do need to we need we need to hold the course. We need to come up with okay, what what's the narrative? What are the tactics? Um, and you know, rebuild. It can be done. So just to challenge you on that, I mean, somebody might say, well, look, you know, most of the women are getting their hijabs pulled off. You know, in schools, your Muslim children are getting treated differently or, you know, the recent case of like, you pray or not. You know, the, the, it's a very real in terms, you know, the people are maybe getting discriminated about their jobs. So it's great to have like a very positive message, bring people on board. But the reality is, there's also, you know, so so how should those issues get dealt with? What just through the law, and if it's something illegal happening? But because in the, you can say look, send send a very positive message, but I guess part of the reason why it's a kind of victim mentality is because people are saying, well, my brother, my sister, me is being discriminated on a daily basis. I'm, you know, getting treated differently because of my faith, because I'm a Muslim, and uh, you know, that needs to be dealt with and recognised. Like, you know. Doing, you know, a, a positive campaign, a feel-good campaign is how is that going to help me when I'm getting? Um... It's an emotional reaction when what you're describing happens, but there's there's a logical fallacy to it, 
So what people are doing when they complain about victimization is saying nobody cares about us. And you're shouting that into a void where you're saying nobody cares. So you have to make people care. You know, people have got to have some degree of sympathy, uh, empathy, love, care. And that's what's got to be built. And that really can only happen through storytelling, which is which is more positive. I, I don't think we've earned victim status and we're not going to earn victim status um, unless something, you know, and I don't even want to describe what needs to happen for that. Um, uh, but, but the Jewish people went through what they went through. So, um, and, and as I said, the, the LGBT community went through the same. They were attacked on the streets. They were beaten up by the police. Um, they were worried about their lives and their loved ones. So they, they went through all of that and they, they've come through that. Um, so there, there's, there, there's a pathway. We've got to think about that um, and, and build from there. Maybe just to add, I think it comes down to the story of Islam and Muslims in Britain, how we tell the story ourselves to ourselves and how we tell it to others. So I think what the point Osama is making is that you can look at the wound, the bleeding, and you can just bandage it and keep bandaging it. But you could take a step back and say, how do we just make this whole thing healthy? And those Islamophobic incidents are a reference point to where someone sees you as something else or an othering. But for some people, they never met a Muslim or their only framing of a Muslim is in a negative context. So they see this and they're offended or scared. We know all these things. But the point being is, are we, how are we offering other narratives, other conversations? And it's a long game. So that stuff of being the present victim is there, has to be tackled and challenged. But the longer game is how you tell the bigger story. And I think it comes down to Islam in some ways and that the Islam in the West paradigm, the who we are, um, there was loads of identity politics. I think a lot of that's faded, but if you bring it back up again, you're saying, oh, you know, that whole British Muslim identity stuff. Not for the non-Muslims, I think for ourselves, mm. actually. And what I think the Gaza, Israel, all this stuff has highlighted to me personally is um, the story we tell. I, I'm more fearful sometimes of the community response to what I say, right, if not all the time, than I am of media, right? Because you, if, you, if you're looking past the presenter, you're not trying to persuade him, you're persuading your audience. Mm -hmm. You know how things are going to land, right? If I know I can connect to that person, but maybe someone in my community doesn't think I'm resonating with the fervor <laughs> of my message, you know, the, the Piers Morgan essentially approach, you know, I'm not getting the sound bites that I need and everyone can go viral on, then there is a, there's a bit of a, a dysfunction. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a marred reality. And some of that is around us um, deciding who we want to be in the present moment, as well as in the long term, but also deciding if we're all willing to be part of the journey. Because if a few of us agree, right, yeah, let's do it. But nobody wants to come with us. And we might just be having our own podcast in this little cozy room in the ark. <laughs> and I guess that was my next shift. Were you going to come here? No, no, it's a bit, as Zara was saying, it's a, it's a question of courage, isn't it? Like at certain points, you as a person, if you feel you need to say something that will essentially not land well with your expected constituents and your own community, are you a type of person that will still say it because you know to be true to yourself, you have to say it? So I think that's where people that have the ability to amplify their voices, they have to make that choice for themselves and whether they have the courage to do that. 
I think that's just really so important because alternative voices are what we need to hear. I never like to exist with an echo chamber where I know everybody's going to be saying what I'm saying. I'll be reading the pro-Zionist voice and seeing, okay, what are they saying? Why are they saying it? I need to recalibrate why I'm thinking based upon what that tells me about their perspective. And if I have a conversation with somebody and they're the complete antithesis of what I am, I still listen, hoping to learn. And then that comes down to yourself as a person. Do you have the courage to do that and to take it on the, in, in, in the neck from your community? And I think that's just, I'm, I, what disappoints me is people that should be doing that, not doing it. Because otherwise you just stagnate within your own echo chamber. Yeah. And just, so I know we'll need to kind of conclude things shortly. So what I'm curious about, I mean, there's so much I've, I've learned from today's discussion is, I mean, where, is it a forum? Where are these discussions happening? Are they? <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that there's some really intelligent people, which there are, With working wisdom. on this, discussing With this, doing it, and, you know, how, you know, we can support them, you know, because I think that's... So is that happening? And, you know, is there a... Those discussions you're talking about, Sama, strategy, how we approach things. You know, people in very senior positions, you 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 know, they'll all be in your phone book, Zara, you know, they'll <laughs> you know, you know, shake you, you know, people come for you for advice, etc. Do we is there a structure, the platform? Is it does it need to be as organized or is it more organic? You know, I don't know. Um this idea of, okay, there's a short term that we're dealing with just now, both with Palestine, Islamophobia, all these issues which are the present, which is okay. But, you know, there's always medium and longer term. And who's working on that? Who's developing that? Where's the forum, the structures, the... Yeah. I think we're all doing our bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say it's very difficult to answer that because it's not a WhatsApp chat where yeah. we're all, maybe we need to create one and it could be uh, leaked in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they, they seem to be caught out. I mean, I think um, with sincerity, we're all thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> Perhaps yeah. all agree. Um, but it's difficult when you're navigating the present to bring all the right voices. The problem is everyone's always suspicious of everybody. Everyone's posturing or really they just want to push their... I don't know. I think there's a lot of good, well-meaning people that are trying, whether it's within the space that they occupy or with others. I don't think there's one forum, because we as a community are very, very diverse, or one space, but probably um, it's a good call to action anyway. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's challenging for lots of different reasons, especially if for some people it's well I don't really want to do this unless we're actually going to do it. We're actually, which is a fair ask, right? I don't want to just talk about this anymore. So a lot of our community feel frustrated. We've had these meetings, we've had these conversations. What's really changed? Yeah. Then you know that whole disillusionment yeah. comes back. because well, I remember when first hearing a bit about the whole. A new Labour kind of project, you know, and it was very much, you know, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, a few people said, this is what we need to do to change the Labour Party, this is what we're going to do, they had the strategy, and then they got the right people, you know, a small team around them, and then they took it in a certain direction, you know, and I'm not saying <laughs> mimic that, but there was that clear kind of, you know, what needs to be done, um, and obviously Muslims is, is not 
a, a political party or just, you know it's more diverse and complicated that but, but what's your kind of sense where you know where are the is the leadership that is saying for the Muslim community you know this is the discussion this is where we need to take it forward and if it's not there why is it not there and what what needs to be done what we're talking about here is people power which is quite different from hard power so Israel is waging a military campaign on, on Gaza that needs centralized function uh, and strategy and delivery. People power is quite different. People power, modern people power is disaggregated um, and people are empowered to take action. And that's the flavor of modern movements, whether you talk about the movement for black lives, the climate justice movement, the Me Too movement, that have, that have made massive social and societal change over, over the last number of years and, and huge impact um, and change for people. Um, and I, I think when we're talking about the movement for, for peace in, in the Holy Land, whether it's building understanding um, of of Muslims and and coexistence between different communities, that comeback started. That that's ongoing. I mean, what what I've been seeing, particularly since um, um, in the last few months, is people getting together. Some of that's happening in a sort of organized way through organizations, but I'm just seeing people using whatever influence and platforms they have on a local level, national level, global level. Let's, let's end this conversation the same way we began it. Things are not going to be the same again after this. People have woken up. Uh, and I'm seeing that happening. Um, I think really important things have already happened. I think even more important things are, are going to happen and they're going to emerge from everywhere. And that's that's good. I, I, I think we need to get away from this. You know, there needs to be some basic element of coordination and cooperation. I think Muslims need to get better at that. But it doesn't need to be one entity. And I, and I think we've got to learn lessons from that as well. When, when, when there has been attempts in the past, that's easily taken down uh, and, and in, in very brutal ways. Um, so there's, there's there's real disadvantages to that, and real advantages to to you know letting people get on with it, and I, and I think that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, cool. Sheikh. Mm. Yeah, I would just reiterate that sentiment. I think we all have spheres of influence that we can utilize, and people have inputs that they can do, and there's you know just happens. I mean, if you create a forum for something, I think there is much more difficult to sustain it. Because it's one amongst many forums that are essentially saying that they're doing the same thing. Um, yeah, I think you need to be much more true to yourself. And I think we can do it organically as well through personal contacts. Because at the end of the day, communication is a lot about the person you're speaking to themselves rather than the message itself. It's about the degree of trust you have with somebody. The advice you give them is, be, is as good as you are in that person's eye. Okay, so I think we'll need to bring things to a close. Uh, any final kind of comments or thoughts people had? I hope people are still optimistic. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's been a very um, thought-provoking conversation. Obviously, um, it's spurred lots of thoughts on for myself as well, which is which is really good. And I think it comes down to um, maybe when we talk about community leadership, we also need to think about whether we're willing to follow wherever that leadership comes from. And the interesting question you asked us was really po poised, I think, around this idea that 
one person is leading that direction. But obviously we can't agree on that. <laughs> Never mind agreeing on, you know, so because I know. So I was just thinking that, you know, um, organized leadership and the point that Osama made is just kind of self-organized or, or not even organized. All of them can exist. But the point being is, are we willing to be good faith partners? And I think all the points we covered today is around opening um, your mind to considering what kind of partner are you? So I could say I'm the head of this really big organization. We represent everybody. But you might be like, well, but I'm not following you, you know, even on Instagram, you know. So I could say I've done all these interviews. Or we're, we're these experts and scholars, whatever, right? But I don't follow you. I don't subscribe to your kind of uh, mudhub or whatever it is. So the point being is what's really important at the end of the day is whether we're trying to do the right thing at this moment and whether what we're doing is really helpful and beneficial. And it's that idea we all, I don't think anybody desires to not do that, but it's taking that introspection to see where is it landing? Who am I helping? And am I even helping myself? And everybody right now is in a lot of pain. That was the final thing I wanted to say is that I know we've said some very cutting things today and we're not being dismissive of anybody or any views or over, you know, not saying that we ourselves are capable of strategizing and everything more than anybody else is, but people are in pain right now. That's a real pain. People are traumatized. People are hurting. And in no way should that be um, undermined, you know. And I think what we're reflecting on is conjecture and speculation, but understanding that everybody has a heart at the end of the day. And we take that into consideration, even ourselves, <laughs> to try and do the best that we can. But thank you so much, Mark. It's, it's so been cool. a very pleasure, pleasurable conversation. Many thank you, Zara. It's been uh, fascinating to hear some of your insights as well. Osama, any kind of closing thoughts or reflections? I don't think I have anything further to add, um, other than it's been a great conversation and I feel exhausted uh, <laughs> taking part in this, but uh, it's been enjoyable. Thank you. Excellent. Sheikh? I mean, you have to acknowledge everybody's contribution i think that's what's really important i think from my perspective you know allah says in the quran whoever desires the hereafter which is essentially not about this world it's the hereafter and your your destiny there but also puts in the effort which means it's here so this is a real conversation we're having about the the challenges and the, the decisions we have to make in our actions and he's a, a believer in god that person's actions will be accepted with gratitude by god so whatever we do, whether we're thinking high level or we're just people doing what we quote unquote consider to be menial interventions, in the eyes of God, they're exactly the same. And in fact, far greater. And that's, that goes back to your point of, are, can we be followers as well? You know, everyone wants to be a thought leader or have their voice heard, but essentially we have to train ourselves to be people that can follow. And where that comes in the seerah is the Prophet sent, his final army was, Osama bin Zaid, who was early teens, um, at the head of an army which contained Abu Bakr and all the most illustrious companions, at, you know, at the end of their lives. But he told them to follow. I mean, that's, I mean, every time I read that, it's difficult to understand. For us, it's, well, he's the best after the Prophet, and then he's the best, and then he's the best. But no, it's, it's, it's also a message to ourselves, which is that we have to be able to follow. And, fall, and, and swallow that pill is very difficult for people. So I think, yeah, definitely. I think wherever the call to action comes and the person speaks the truth, we should be ready to answer that call.
So thank you to all my guests. So just to say if, um, you know, we have been very frank, a lot of discussions is obviously, you know, uh, not meant to upset or hurt anyone, but really wanted to think and speak in an open space really about, you know, a lot of the issues that are facing us. And um, if there are any shortcomings, please forgive us. Um, but I hope you enjoyed some of these reflections. If you did, please do comment, like, subscribe, all the usual stuff you hear at the end of a podcast. But um, if you like this format, then let us know as well. We'd welcome feedback because um, we could do more of this type of format or otherwise there'll be other different type of things on the Muslim-centric podcast. So jazakallah khair to all our guests and uh, thank you very much for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum